The story you're about to hear was told to me in the strictest of confidence. Certain names, dates and locations may have been changed to protect that confidence. Events that feature in this story may be part of the public record. If you believe you recognise any of the people, places or events that feature in this story, I ask you not to reveal any information publicly, out of respect for the subject's right to remain anonymous. My name is David Paul Nixon, and this is the New Ghost Stories podcast, where we delve into the New Ghost Stories archive to hear witness accounts of the supernatural. Stories that could be delusions, lies, fantasies, or perhaps even the real thing. Just don't make your mind up until you've listened. Hello, and welcome to a difficult episode of the podcast. It's a funny thing to say that you're not looking forward to an episode of your own show. Nevertheless, today we're going to hear a case that is, I think, a harder listen than normal. And I know this isn't a podcast for people who love light and sunshine. Things often don't end well. And although occasionally we do have episodes with some positive outcomes, this is not one of those episodes. It's maybe the hardest case I've ever had to work on, just in terms of its intensity. The subject was someone whose anger and pain had not diminished at all since it took place. And to sit across from them and hear them recount it, and hold nothing back, I have perhaps never felt so uncomfortable. And we had to go through it all on several occasions. It's part of my investigative technique to have the subject repeat their account over and over, so that I can scrutinise it, see if there are inconsistencies, examine details. To sit through this tale, over and over, I honestly never thought the subject would want to put herself through it. But she did. She did everything I asked of her. I do sometimes wonder why people put themselves through this. I don't always make it easy for them. I am demanding when it comes to their time and in insisting on corroborative evidence. But I think one of the reasons people ultimately do go through with it all is that Nobody else is willing to listen. There are so few places for them to go where they can be taken seriously. Whatever my flaws are as an investigator and interviewer, I at least give them the opportunity to speak, and perhaps there is some satisfaction in going through it and providing the evidence and having that story be accepted. There may also be an element of needing to prove the story to themselves, as much as to me. But this is one of those stories where, if the subject is not telling the truth, then the other possibilities for what may have really occurred are very disturbing indeed. Normally when a story is signed off and published, that's it, I simply move on to the next one. But after this story came out, there was blowback. I was contacted by the other major character in this story, and their response was not positive. Through their lawyers, they made a number of legal threats against me, something I was not expecting or prepared for. I did seek advice, and I was assured that there were no grounds for anyone to demand the story be withdrawn, nor were there any grounds for taking action for libel. But the subject's former partner is a person of means. They sent many more letters and made many attempts to intimidate me, 
before eventually giving up. While it's unwise for me to give out any details, I will state the following for the record, as there is a chance that those threats will resurface once this podcast goes out. The views of the subject are their own. I do not necessarily endorse those views, and my decision to publish them and feature them in this podcast is not a sign of any kind of endorsement. I've read every story that appears in my books and in this podcast, though I believe that each subject I feature is telling the truth as far as they know it. I have never claimed that any story is definitively true, nor have I claimed that my methods are perfect. I do not know for certain what occurred. What I believe is that everyone has the right to speak and to be heard. Somehow I doubt that will be the end of it. But we shall see. On a brighter note, I am presently putting the final touches to New Ghost Stories Volume 3, and I still expect to bring that out on the 8th of October, providing there are no slip-ups on the way. It's available to pre-order now from Amazon. Just search for New Ghost Stories Volume 3. There will be a print copy available, hopefully out on the same day, but for some reason, Amazon doesn't offer a pre-order option for paperbacks. But if you're interested in one, those will definitely be available soon. Now, it's time for case number 104. It's called In a Box, and you can hear it in full, uninterrupted, after these promotional messages. The New Ghost Stories podcast is now on Patreon. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to support what I do, please consider making a per-episode donation. You'll also get access to some upcoming bonus content. Just visit patreon.com slash newghoststories. Probably worth mentioning that the narrator of this story is female. Here goes. It was five or six years ago. We'd moved into this new house in Letchworth, me and Peter and Benjamin. He was such a happy boy. So bright and so sweet. He had these big wide open eyes, bright blue eyes and this cheeky, enigmatic little smile. He was only about three or four when we moved. Those were the happiest times of my life. After the difficult first few years of looking after him and struggling with money and work, everything was finally coming together. We were stable, we could afford things, the house, the car. Benjamin didn't need quite as much looking after. Things were so much easier. You see, I'd been determined to keep up with my work after I gave birth. I wanted to do it but also because we thought we'd struggle without the money. It was hard to work while Benjamin was little. But then Peter started to become more known and his income helped to keep us afloat. And then he recorded that album. It did so well, it changed his life, it changed all our lives. Suddenly we weren't always living on the breadline, we could afford to enjoy life more, we could afford to go away, we could afford a mortgage. Everything was so perfect for a time. Benjamin had been such a handful growing up. He was always so hyperactive, he got that from Peter. He could never stay still either. It had been such a struggle getting it all balanced before. When Peter had his breakthrough, it was when we were getting Benjamin ready to start school. We moved closer to the school we wanted for him. We could afford the fees and I could spend more time working. But more than that, I went back to painting, painting just for me, 
just enjoying painting without any deadlines or clients or commissions. We all had our space, things were just right. Peter's career was going so well that anything seemed possible. We had holidays in the south of France, Italy, and Florida for Disney World for Ben. But success meant more work, Peter became very much in demand, which was good, but only for a while. The hours were long. You know what artists can be like, musicians even worse. Drunks, crack addicts, hooligans, even schizophrenics. He was selective at first, but sometimes he was pressured into working with people he didn't want to. It's the freelancer's curse. No matter how hard you work, you're always terrified it could dry up at any time. The late nights and hours were only half the problem. A lot of these kid bands, they like to imitate. They like to pay tribute to those who came before, or copy if you like. So they wanted to record abroad at the Berlin studios where Bowie and Eno did low, at Sun Studios where Elvis, Dylan, Cash and Carl Perkins played. And he wanted to go too. Why wouldn't he want to work at some of the most iconic studios in the world? Never mind us. I kept getting stuck alone, doing all the work myself. He'd come to me and say, Come on, it's where Bowie did Heroes. So I'd have to go along with it and pretend I was okay for him to leave me alone with Benjamin. He'd be gone for months, maybe coming home a couple of times if he could squeeze it in. Of course, I could afford to get some help for Benjamin, but I didn't want to do that. I felt ashamed to hire a nanny. Stupid, really, but I did. Parents lived too far away. His mother, Ellen, was very good and would come down from time to time. But my parents were old and my father needed lots of looking after. And I started to resent his success. I admit that. His career had gone stratospheric and mine hadn't. I didn't care about the design work. I did okay with that. I had some good clients. But it was my art I loved. And I could never get any interest in my work. In some ways it was better when I wasn't doing it. When I didn't have time, I didn't have time. When I had some time, but not enough time, that's when I became frustrated. It's like I could never focus, never give it the time I needed. There was always something else to do. It's no small job looking after a house and looking after a child at the same time. Not that Benjamin was really much trouble. That was the strange thing. He got to a certain age and he was suddenly no trouble at all. <laughs> My God, I was so selfish. Sometimes I'd lash out, get angry and lash out. Poor Benjamin, it wasn't his fault. He was just a child. But it wasn't just that. Even though he'd been in Letchworth for a few years, I had no friends there, nowhere to go. We had friends in London, but it's not a short commute. So I had enough time for me to go during the day and be back to get Benjamin from school. And then, of course, I had to look after him on weekends, too. I felt so isolated. Sometimes friends visited, but not often. They had lives of their own, and I never made a fuss. I felt embarrassed to really tell them how I felt. We started to row a lot, me and Peter. We would have slanging matches over the phone, and I got so stupid, started to get paranoid about the people he was hanging around with. I didn't really think he'd have an affair or start taking stuff, I was just jealous and afraid that he was leaving me behind. 
It all came to a head after he'd been in Jamaica with a band for months. I don't even remember who they were. Their success was so short-lived. But at that time, they were such a big deal. They were always fighting and falling out. He wanted to can it, but the record label put so much pressure on him to bring back something. He managed in the end. I don't think it ever got released. When he got back, he was barely through the door before we started to fight. Things had started to change. While he was away, things weren't as they used to be. Benjamin had gotten into a fight at school. His school was so damn liberal. Kids get in fights all the time, but they wanted to make a big deal about it. I had to talk to the headmistress. They wanted to talk to both of us. When only I turned up, well, they made such a big deal about that. Benjamin was too introverted. He didn't mix with the other boys, just played by himself. I got angry with them, told them there was nothing wrong at home. But there was something wrong. Even if I couldn't explain it, I couldn't even get Ben to talk about the fight. He said the boys had said bad things, but that's all he'd say. I couldn't make the connection. My Benjamin, quiet, introverted. That wasn't the boy I'd raised. That wasn't who he was. But he wasn't the handful he used to be. He was quiet. He did play by himself and didn't make a fuss. I had the goodest, best-behaved boy in the world. He was no trouble at all anymore. Sure, he did normal things like sulk if I made him eat things he didn't like, or if we were in a shop and he'd ask for toys or sweets or something and throw a tantrum if he didn't get what he wanted. But at home, when we were alone, he was quiet as a mouse. I'd be in the living room painting all day, and I'd forget he was there. I'd just paint for hours and he'd be... somewhere. Sounds terrible. I hate to say it. But he just didn't seem to want me or need me. He wasn't noisy. He wasn't loud. He never broke anything. It never occurred to me how strange that was. And then that became a problem. I got stressed because my son was too well behaved. It sounds crazy. But I started to feel so distant from him. We had a showdown, me and Peter. What was more important, his family or his career? He got so angry, as angry as I'd ever seen him. I made him feel guilty and he hated me for that. He didn't understand that I was... I was falling apart. This wasn't what I wanted. I wanted us to be together as a family. That's what it was all for. That's what we got married for. The money wasn't that important. He kept telling me he was doing it for us. But he was doing it for him, for his ego. He liked the limelight. I know he did. He was getting the jet-setting lifestyle he'd always wanted. And we were holding him back. I couldn't make him see how much it was affecting me. He thought it was all rubbish, this stuff about Benjamin. He was so damn arrogant. Nothing could be wrong with his son. That stung his pride. And he was furious. He knew I was jealous. But he didn't know that I was holding something back. I couldn't tell him just how much being away was really starting to affect me. It was more than just the stress of him not being around. It was something else. I had started... I was beginning to think that something was watching me in the house. That something was 
following me. It sounded crazy, and I thought it was. Once I started to notice how quiet it was, how quiet Benjamin was, it started to upset me. I couldn't stand the quiet. I used to put the radio or the television on in any room, just to drown out the silence. I'd have to work hard to bring Ben out of his own little world, tell him we were going to the park or that we should play a game. Sure, he'd get excited then, start getting involved. But as soon as we stopped, as soon as we got home or I'd get distracted from the game, he was gone again. He'd draw, he'd read, play with his building block, or more often than not, just wander silently off. Sometimes I'd ask him, I'd say, What are you thinking about, sweetie? But he wouldn't answer. He'd just smile enigmatically, or just say, Nothing. Sometimes I felt like getting so angry. But I couldn't. Not when he looked at me so sweetly. One time, do you know what he said? I asked him why he was so quiet, and he said, Silence is golden. I should have known then that something was wrong, really wrong. I just couldn't bring myself to face it. I mean, kind of five-year-old says that. I became obsessive about noise. There had to be sound everywhere, but I couldn't fill the void. God, it was only a three-bedroom terraced house. It wasn't huge, but it started somehow to feel cavernous, huge, empty, vast. And in that atmosphere, in those moments of silence, that's when I started to get the sensation I was being watched. It could happen at any time. Usually when I went out into the hall or onto the landing, I'd just be moving from one room to another, going from the kitchen to the living room or up the stairs, and i get this feeling someone was watching me. I'd just get this sensation. I wasn't alone. This, I don't know, shiver, this feeling. I'd turn and I'd see nothing. Whenever I got this feeling, I felt cold, dead cold. I'd get shivers all over my body. I thought at first it must be Benjamin playing a game with me. But he was never nearby when it happened. He would always be outside, upstairs or in a different part of the house. I couldn't admit it at the time to Peter or myself. I wouldn't even think about it between incidents. But deep down I couldn't ignore that something was wrong in that house. I couldn't put it into words, into ways he could understand. I thought he was so sensitive and open when we first met. What an idiot I was. What an idiot he was. He was oblivious right up until it was too late. All the hysteria would come out during our arguments. He underestimated just how fragile I was becoming. I made him swear, made him promise that the travel, the long periods away, they had to stop. I just wasn't going to accept no for an answer. He had to stay around London and stay with us. I tried to convince him that we were better off together as a family, stronger together. He agreed, but he wasn't completely on board, I could tell. I knew it. But I got his word. That was enough for now. Things were more normal for a while. We got back to playing happy families. We were fine for money. We spent plenty of time together, family days out and the like. Of course, his resentment would bubble up from time to time, 
I was prepared to slap him if he ever said he felt cooped up. This is what we wanted. This is what he wanted too. It wasn't just me. He asked me to marry him, start a family. Usually he'd bite his tongue and slip away for a sulk. I gritted my teeth and didn't rise to it. But things did at least eventually get back to normal. Benjamin was more his old self for a while, more lively, more in the world with the rest of us. He just seemed to connect better with his father. I don't know why or how. I wasn't any different with him, any less affectionate, any less warm, or fun to be around. Maybe he just didn't like me as much. I mean, I did everything I could with him, everything. We got along fine, but he was never as affectionate with me. I don't know what I did wrong because I was a good mother to him. I gave him everything I could. He used to garden with me. That was the one thing we used to do together where I could see that he was having as much fun with me as he was with his father. Before, we used to pay for this man to come over and do it, but I decided I was going to do it because by that point I'd basically given up on my art. It was nothing, just a blockage. I'd lost my touch if ever I'd had it. Couldn't get inspired, couldn't make anything I started come to life, so just quit. He seemed to like gardening and being outside. I think it was the digging and making a mess that appealed to him. Although he liked to see things grow, knowing that he'd planted something and then see it grow. He got obsessed with making compost. He bought this compost bin for the outside and he's obsessed with trying to find things to put in. He'd leave some of his food and say he was doing it so he could use it to make compost, an excuse to not eat his vegetables. Those were the last good times we spent together. Things got so back to normal that when something strange happened, I didn't really notice. A clue to all that had gone on before came up and I didn't realise it. I didn't realise its meaning till much later when it was too late. This one time, during that happy time, he was putting clothes away and I heard him talking. His bedroom was next to ours and with him being usually so quiet, I went straight over to him to see what was going on. He was hiding under his duvet, talking to someone. But only he was there. I called out his name and he threw himself from under the blankets like I'd walked in on something secretive. Who are you talking to, sweetie? I asked him. No one, he said, with a sly little smile. Oh, I said, I thought I heard you. No, he said, and dived back under the duvet, without saying another word. Kids have their games. I didn't think much about it at the time. Things were happy again. I didn't want to dwell on the bad times. I put them to the back of my mind as much as I could. You know how it is. You, you sometimes choose not to believe things you don't want to face. It was happy families again. Everything was supposed to be fine. We went almost a year playing happy families. Things were truly blissful again. Me and Peter had started to connect like we used to. We even talked about having another child. It seemed like such a good idea now that everything was back on track. Couldn't last though, could it? One day he announced that Blank, the band he'd helped go big, they wanted him for their new album. It was a big deal. Could be worth a fortune. 
but they were recording in America, not England. He'd be gone for six weeks at least, maybe longer. I was livid. Just as everything was settled, he wanted to take off again. We had this horrible row. He denied promising that he'd said he'd never go away again, that he'd just agreed not to do it for a while. This opportunity was too big to miss. He approached me as if this was already a done deal and there was no negotiation. We had such a slanging match. It was so bad, but he tricked me into agreeing to it, providing it was one last time. I can't believe I let him leave us. He should have stayed. This wouldn't have happened if he'd stayed. Quickly, things started to go back to how they were before. It was term time, so when Benjamin was away, I never really felt alone. And then when he was there, his quietness, he was so quiet I wanted to scream. I felt alone when he was there and watched when he wasn't. Sometimes he felt like a ghost, barely even there with me. I'd hear his creeping footsteps upstairs just sparsely like he was creeping around. It would drive me crazy. I kept it all back. I never went crazy mad at him. He seemed so innocent, so serenely in his own world. But when parents' night came around at school, I went to see his teachers, and they commented with concern about how detached he was. They wanted to know where his father was. I could see how their minds were working. They were thinking he had a horrible home life, that his father was violent, and I was a drunk, and they had withdrawn from the terrible life he had. The questions they asked, the insinuations, I couldn't take it. They wanted to get up and throttle that woman. That look of fake sympathy and understanding. I did everything I could for that boy. My boy. I was planning to take him to a therapist. To hell with what Peter thought. This just wasn't natural. At least if I got a therapist to bring him out of his own little world, he might not come to hate me. Then there was this one day. I saw him out in the garden. We had these two trees growing and he was running around them. And I could see him talking to someone. I watched him for a while. He was having a private little game with someone who wasn't there. Was that it? Did he have an imaginary friend? A friend so good that he didn't even need me? I asked later that day. He was eating his tea and I was doing the washing up. He was quiet again, so I said to him, Who was that you were talking to? He didn't answer. So I asked him again, Who was that you were talking to outside? After pushing some food around on his plate, he said, Wasn't talking to anyone. I heard you. I saw you talking to someone outside. Who were you talking to? He didn't answer again, and I got angry. Benjamin, who were you talking to? Wasn't talking to anyone, he shouted. He slammed his knife and fork down his food half-eaten and just left. He stormed off upstairs and disappeared. I was flabbergasted. My too-good-to-be-true good little boy just didn't do things like that. I felt so guilty I made myself feel ill. I shouldn't have shouted at him. That night I really decided I was going to find a therapist for him. I was upstairs in the bedroom looking through names on my laptop when suddenly Benjamin was there in the doorway in his pyjamas ready for bed. He was always so good about that too. 
I'm sorry I shouted, Mum. Neil said I wasn't to tell you or anybody his name, and I thought he would be upset with me, but now he says it's okay, and I can tell you that his name is Neil, and that he's my best friend, and that we play all the time. He grinned at me, and I looked back at him speechless. He thinks you're funny, he said, and then he went back to his bedroom. I sat silently on the bed. I didn't know what to think now. Was I overreacting? Was I going mad? I looked it up online. Imaginary friends. Apparently they weren't a bad thing, but a boy of Benjamin's age should be growing out of it. I went to put him to bed. As I knelt beside him, I said I was glad he told me about Neil. But I asked him, I said, Don't you think you spend too much time playing with Neil? I said that he needed to be making friends with other boys and girls, and that playing with them would be so much better than skulking around at home with Neil. He suddenly got so angry, his perfect pretty face creased up into an angry, fierce little scowl, and he cried, Neil's my best friend, my best friend in the whole world. I like him better than I like you. He rolled over. I yelled at him, I screamed at him. Don't you ever say that. Don't you ever say something like that to me again. Don't you ever. I tried to roll him back over, but he wouldn't move. I gave up, slammed the door and went back to my computer. I was going to find someone to talk to him. This couldn't go on. The next morning I was adamant that I was going to call one of the names on my list. But early in the morning I got a call from Peter. He was happy, enthusiastic. Recording had been going so well there wouldn't be any extra time needed. He'd be home within a week. I wanted to tell him. Wanted to raise hell with him. I was so lonely. I just wanted to hear someone else's voice. And he was in such good spirits I couldn't tell him. I felt such shame. A mother who couldn't connect with her son. I couldn't bear the thought of being judged like that. I just spoke calmly and nicely. He could tell I wasn't completely fine. But I just let it go that time. I didn't want to row. I just wanted him back home. It's horrible to admit you're going mad to someone. I decided to put off calling someone for just a little longer. If Peter would be home in just over a week, I could discuss it with him. He wouldn't like it, but I wasn't taking no for an answer. He was going to hate me for it, but he'd hate me more if I didn't at least talk to him about it. God knows what he'd think about Neil. But of course, Benjamin was all smiles and sunshine when he was there. Peter was so damn perfect. It was just me who was all wrong. The next day was a Saturday, just me and Benjamin in the house. He was sulking, not talking to me out of anger and spite, rather than his usual pretending I wasn't there. I started to question him about Neil. He didn't give answers very willingly. I asked him about what he'd said the night before, and why he wasn't supposed to tell me about Neil. He said, Neil said that you'd try to split us up, that you wouldn't understand. I told him I wasn't trying to split them up, that I just wanted to understand. I asked him where Neil was, what he looked like. Neil was apparently a normal boy just like him, although he had blonde hair and freckles. I asked him how long he'd known Neil, where had Neil come from. He's always been here. He's been here for years, but only I can see him. He skulked away into the living room, leaving me with a horrible thought. That damn feeling, that ominous fear that I wasn't alone. That someone was watching me. 
then maybe I wasn't just being stupid and paranoid and going mad. What if something was there in the house, watching me? The thought creeped me the hell out, oh God, I can't tell you. But I told myself it couldn't be true, that it was all stupid and that everything would be fine once Peter got home, and then maybe after we got Ben some help. Maybe I should get some help too. I had to get out of the house. I needed to do some shopping, so I dragged Ben along with me, although he didn't want to come and made a sulky nuisance of himself the whole afternoon. Was it this imaginary friend that was keeping him so well behaved? I didn't know what to think. I was so confused I was in hell. One of the shops we went into was a charity shop. It was after I'd done the main shop I dropped some old clothes off. I was looking through the clothes and the shoes and Benjamin was looking at the toys and the books. He'd been such a pain. I was glad for once that he was quiet. Then suddenly he took my sleeve and said, Mum, have you seen this? It was all smiles and perk again. He pulled me towards this toy chest. It was about a metre long, painted white with clowns and balls and streamers hand-painted. Good in its way, the clowns were jolly, not frightening. It looked like something that might have come from a fairground. It had certainly been knocked around quite a bit, though. The paint was starting to peel off. It wasn't new by any means. It's nice, isn't it? I can fit all my toys into there and keep my room tidy. Can I have it, please, Mum? The old ladies behind the counter cooed. They loved that. A little boy who wanted to keep his room tidy. They thought he was an angel. I smiled awkwardly, unable, obviously, to tell them what a nightmare I was in. The chest was ten pounds. They said I could have it for eight. Benjamin stretched the word, please, as long as he could, and I... I just ended up being pressured into buying it. He didn't need it. I didn't really like it much. Kids can manipulate you like that, can't they? It was just a stupid chest. It shouldn't have meant anything. But that was the beginning. The beginning of the end. A few days later, just a few days before Peter came home, I was upstairs putting my clothes away. I knew Benjamin was in his room. I'd seen him. But when I came past his door a few minutes later, he wasn't there. His room was empty, but I was sure he couldn't have gone back down the stairs. Even Benjamin, with his creepy, quiet behaviour, wasn't able to shift around that silently, nor up and down those creaky old stairs. Some of his toys were scattered across his floor. So much for him being tidy. And I noticed that the toys had been dumped right out in front of the chest, as if they'd just been emptied out. I had the sudden instinct to look inside. I opened up the lid. In the box, half covered in stuffed toys, was Benjamin. He was lying on his back, his arms folded across his chest, like a body in a coffin. I cried his name, Benjamin! His eyes flicked open. What are you doing in there? I pulled him up by the arms and hoisted him out. We were playing hide and seek. Playing hide and seek with who? With Neil. Oh, for God's sake. I lifted him out and put him down on the floor. It was just a game, he shouted, getting defensive. Benjamin, I said, trying not to shout myself. You could have suffocated in there. 
Do you know what that means? Air can't get inside and out. You can't breathe. You know about breathing, don't you? They've taught you this at school. He looked at the floor, which meant he had learnt about it. Then he ran away down the stairs. I found him hiding in the garden. He refused to come back in, even when it started to rain. I had to physically drag him inside, kicking and screaming. He went to bed without his dinner that night. I wasn't afraid to punish him, even if Peter was. The next few days went by so slowly. Ben just had this face on him all the time, like there was a bad smell in the room. He hated me. My son hated me. I couldn't bear it. I never touched him, never laid a bare hand on him. But I thought I could strangle him. I wanted to strangle my little boy. What have I done to deserve this? I just had to wait till Peter came back. His timing couldn't have been better. That day I had been to the doctors and got caught in traffic on the way back. I called him and he agreed to collect Ben for me. He was glad to and everything seemed fine. Then, when I got home, I noticed something. The chest I'd bought Benjamin was sticking out of the top of the wheelie bin. There was a piece of it lying in the driveway. It had been smashed to pieces and then stuffed into the already overflowing wheelie bin. I went in confused about what had happened. As soon as I was through the door, Peter came marching towards me, ranting and raving. I asked him what the hell was wrong and took him into the living room, closing the door behind us, hoping Benjamin wouldn't hear. I thought maybe he'd found the list of child therapists and thought I'd gone ahead and contacted one. But it was much stranger than that. He asked me, yelled at me, what the hell I thought I was doing buying that toy chest for Ben? Didn't I know that he could get himself killed? Didn't I know that children often suffocated in chests like that because they didn't understand that air might not be able to get in? I couldn't understand what he was getting so angry about. I might have thought he'd gone mad if it hadn't already almost happened. But I couldn't admit that. I was already feeling like I was a terrible mother. I tried to calm him down. That sort of thing had to be exceptionally rare. Death by toy chest. It's not high up on the child fatality list. It's hardly tuberculosis or playing with matches. He was sweating. I could tell something else was wrong. I thought maybe he'd found Benjamin lying in the chest again and had been scared witless. He told me that when he grew up, someone he knew had died like that. They climbed into a chest and their parents had found them hours later, their face blue, their body cold and lifeless. That explained his little, but I knew there was more. Peter was usually so damn unflappable. Benjamin was cheerful and talking again but he could see his father was upset, so that didn't last long. We had pizza, usually a nice treat, but it wasn't fun. After I'd put Benjamin to bed, I made Peter tell me what had really happened. He didn't want to at first, but I could tell I'd stumbled across something terrible from his past, and I couldn't leave that sort of thing alone. I was his wife. He shouldn't be hiding things from me. Eventually he started to tell me a story. When he was a kid, there were three children on his street and they used to play together. Having children roughly at the same time had made all three families very close and it was not unusual for them to have each other over to their houses or for them to play in the street and go on days out together. 
There was Peter, Oscar and Nils. The Lundgren family was Swedish but had lived in England for over a decade. The three children played together all the time from when they were very young. But by the time they were seven or eight, most of them had siblings too. Peter had his little brother Lance, who lives in Canada now, and Oscar had brothers and so on. The Lundgrens had had a second child after many problems. Nils had almost died in birth, and they'd been told that they might never have another. That's probably what made Nils so shy and scared. Peter had said that his parents were overprotective of him. They'd had a little girl they'd called Sigrid, and they were going to have a big party after her christening. It was being held at the Lundgren's house, and all three families and their relatives were there. Out of the three of them, Oscar was sort of the leader, bossing the other two around. Peter was usually happy to go along with it, but Nils was shy and cautious and he'd sometimes get pushed around. Peter said he used to try to stand up for Nils, stop Oscar from picking on him but often he would become impatient with Nils too and they both might pick on him, maybe bully him a bit. On the day of the christening, the three of them were playing together at the party after, along with Lance, who was the oldest of the next generation of kids. They were playing hide-and-seek around the Lundgren's house, which was the biggest on the street, and somewhere where they didn't normally have the chance to play. Nils wasn't good at playing hide-and-seek, despite living there, Oscar kept pestering him that it was because he was afraid of the dark. Nils was getting upset by this, and even Lance was starting to tease him too. Peter was trying not to tease him, but he didn't want to defend him too much because he didn't want to look bad in front of Oscar or his brother. After a while of teasing him, Nils said he could find somewhere to hide, somewhere where no one would ever find him. So Oscar told him to go. It was supposed to be Nils' turn to go look but Oscar would let him have another go at hiding if he had such a great place to hide. So off he went. But instead of Peter and Lance going to hide too, Oscar thought it would be really funny that they'd pretend he'd found a place to hide so good that they just couldn't find him. Lance thought it was hilarious, but Peter thought it was harsh. But then Oscar started laying into him, telling him he was a baby and that it was funny. Peter went along with it, but after a while, when Niels didn't show up, he went looking for him. He went all over the house looking, but he couldn't find him. At one point, he went into Niels' father's office. None of them had hidden in there because they thought they might get in trouble. Niels' father was a lawyer, and his office was full of paperwork and case files. And in there was this chest. And Peter wondered if Niels was there inside. But when he went to the box, he noticed there was a latch on the front and that it was on really tight. He couldn't open it, so he thought Nils couldn't possibly be in there because it couldn't be opened. So eventually he gave up too and went on playing with the others. He had no idea something terrible had happened. So when after more than half an hour no one had seen Nils, their parents started to ask about him. And when they started shouting and he didn't answer, they started tearing the place apart looking for him. Peter said it was almost an hour before they found him. He suffocated to death in that chest. They pulled him out and he was bright blue and ice cold. His parents blamed it all on Peter and Oscar. And from then on, the families were no longer friends. Nils' father started to drink heavily and he would shout and yell at Peter and his brother in the street. He and Peter's father got into fights. Nils' father said he'd take them to court, but he never did. 
Eventually they just moved, but it drove a wedge between them and Oscar's family too. Well, Neil's family blamed both of them. Peter's family blamed Oscar's. He never saw them again after they moved. Peter told me all this with tears flowing down his face. Obviously he had buried these memories away deep and hadn't thought about them or faced them in years. He was less than ten when it all happened. I listened sympathetically, held him as he cried. But while he told the story, one question burned deeply in my mind, a question that had me all in a panic through what he was telling me. When he told me everything, and he pulled himself back together a bit, I asked him about Nil's name. I asked him whether anyone had ever called Nil's Neil. All the time, he said. People didn't get that it was a foreign name, and people often called him Neil by mistake. Apparently I fell off the bed and fainted. I didn't think I was out very long. I woke up on the bed with Peter standing over me with his concerned face on. Peter wanted to know what had happened. Was I all right? I wasn't all right, and I told him. I started to tell him everything about Neil and Benjamin. He didn't believe me at first. He started ranting and raving again about how there was nothing wrong with Benjamin and how he thought I'd got over all this. So I lashed out back at him and told him about the chest and how I'd found Benjamin inside, threw it in his face to show him I'd been right all along, that our son was acting strange, that he was lost in a world of his own, that there was something else in this house with us. I mean, what kind of kid has an imaginary friend called Neil? It's not very imaginative, is it? Benjamin had a wonderful imagination. We argued all night. Peter kept trying to escape the truth, that the ghost of his dead friend had come back, and now he was trying to take Benjamin away from us. I know that sounds crazy, but there wasn't another explanation. It all added up, insane though it sounds, it all made sense. That next morning the two of us sat Benjamin down, and Peter asked him about Neil. Ben said he didn't know anyone called Neil, that he didn't have an imaginary friend, that he didn't know what I was talking about. I practically screamed the place down, how could he lie like that? And straight away, my loyal husband started to doubt everything that I had said. I shouted at Benjamin, I started to cry, tears pouring down my face. Perfect little manipulator. I was livid, I was screaming the place down. Peter took Benjamin away to his room, and then came back down to me, and all hell broke loose. He said I was going insane, that I wasn't the woman he married, that I was making it all up. He couldn't see that Benjamin was lying to him, that his perfect little son wasn't so perfect. How would he know anything about him anyway? He wasn't even there half the time. But they played it so beautifully. I could prove nothing. Everything I was saying could be disputed. My word against Benjamin's, against the perfect little angel who did nothing wrong when Peter was there. Not a damn thing. We argued for hours. Peter said I was the one who needed help, not Benjamin. And what's more, if I didn't get it, he was taking Benjamin away from me. He was going to take away my son. Because I couldn't be trusted with him anymore. I exploded. 
He said that there was nothing I could do about it. I said I'd call the police. He said he would tell them everything. But all the lies and delusions and about how unstable I was. I had a choice. Either I could seek help voluntarily, or he'd report me to social services. He was going to call his parents and take Benjamin there while I made up my mind. I was a wreck, bawling with tears prostrate on the floor. How could he do that to me? My own husband. That bastard. He made me doubt myself again. Could I really be imagining it all? Could I be making it all up? Was I really ill? Was it all my fault? I didn't know any more. I just didn't know. All I knew was that I didn't want to be alone. I didn't want to be without my family. They were my life. I didn't have anything else. Without them I had nothing. I was nothing. Peter couldn't get a hold of his parents. That bought me some time. He could hear me crying my eyes out and I think finally he felt some guilt and shame. He came back into the kitchen and sat down with me and he tried to say sorry. Said that this was his fault. He should have known early that I was breaking down. He shouldn't have left me alone. He had plenty of warning signs and he was too stupid not to have acted on them sooner. He didn't know what he was talking about but I was so near suicidal that I would have taken anything, any small sign of affection from anyone. We sat on the floor crying together for more than half an hour. We were going to get help together. We were going to get through this. Fucking idiot. He couldn't see what was staring him in the face. After a while, he said he was going to go upstairs and see if Benjamin was all right. I wasn't crying anymore. I was fatigued and barely able to stand up. I had been that emotional. I washed my face and tried to look normal in the vain hope that Benjamin might be convinced that everything was going to be all right. Peter came back downstairs. He said he couldn't find Benjamin. We both started shouting loud at the top of our lungs. We yelled his name. We screamed his name. We couldn't find him. He was nowhere to be seen. We both panicked. Frantically, we started tearing the place apart. Opening cupboards, searching under beds, wardrobes, anywhere. Peter searched upstairs, I searched downstairs. There were only so many places to hide. I looked down behind the sofas, behind the television. I opened up all the kitchen cupboards under the table, behind the curtains. I searched under the stairs, pulling out all my canvases. He wasn't there. I heard Peter pulling down the attic stairs. I checked my phone. He'd already been missing for more than ten minutes. I rushed to the stairs to help Peter as I put my foot on the bottom step. I got that feeling. Cold shivers up my spine. I was being watched. I threw my head around. There was no one in the corridor like always. There was nothing there. But this time I wasn't so sure. And I was desperate and in a state of panic. So I yelled, Benjamin! knowing deep down there was still no one there. Then I saw it. Just the tiniest of glimpses of a foot, a child's shoe just protruding from behind the kitchen doorframe. Benjamin! I screamed. A child peered from inside the kitchen. He stood half behind the doorframe, just his left side visible to me. 
His hair was blonde, his eyes were brown. His clothes were old and faded, it wasn't Benjamin. He was smiling at me, malevolently, and then he disappeared. Benjamin! I screamed and ran into the kitchen. The back door to the garden was wide open. It was pouring with rain outside. The boy was nowhere to be seen, but as I stood in the doorway, I saw the door to the shed was not closed either. I ran across the soggy wet lawn towards the door. I pushed it open and staggered inside. The shed was empty, except for all the tools and sacks of compost. Compost. I looked towards the windows below which stood the two compost bins where me and Benjamin used to toss our leftovers and vegetable peelings. The lid of one of them wasn't properly closed. It was propped up like it had been overfilled. I ran to it, threw open the lid. Two feet pointed out at me from the soil. I screamed and dug my hands in and pulled at Benjamin's feet. He was dug in so deep I couldn't even pull him out. I dug more, screaming, crying. I tipped the bin over. As it spilled out, I was able to get my arms in and pull him out. He was already cold, my poor little boy. His eyes were closed tight. I couldn't get them open. Tried to resuscitate him. His mouth was full of soil. There was nothing I could do. I picked him up and held him to my chest. He was already gone. I fell to the floor in tears, holding my beautiful boy so tight. I was in so much pain. I could barely even see my eyes were flooded with tears. The pain, my poor boy, my precious boy. What did he ever do to deserve this? He was so young. Peter came in. He saw me on the floor, distraught, debilitated in pain. That motherfucker. He screamed at me and wrenched Benjamin out of my arms. He ran back across the lawn. I went after him, but I got to the kitchen doors and found them locked. He locked me out to get me away from my son. I banged on the doors, banged on the windows. He tried to resuscitate him. He beat his chest, tried to clear his mouth, but he could do nothing. He brought death into my home, and now he could do nothing. He called the police and ambulance on his mobile. He ignored me, didn't look in my direction. I beat so hard on those windows that I shattered one of the glass panes, but it was too late. I fell to the floor onto the soaking wet doorstep. I picked up a small piece of glass and tried to cut my wrists. Couldn't even do that properly. All the big shards of glass had fallen on the inside. He did nothing to stop me. He just left me there. And when the police came, he told them I'd done it. The motherfucker told them I'd murdered my own son. My own husband told them I'd killed my own son. They locked me up for a while. There was a trial and inquest. That liar told them he'd done nothing. And when I told them it was all his fault... All his fault because he killed that boy all those years ago. He flat out fucking denied it. Denied that he'd ever told me about Nils and that that boy had never existed. They wanted to pin it on me. They all thought I was mad too. But they couldn't prove I hurt my boy. There were no marks on him. I'd have to have incapacitated him to get him in there. 
but there were no marks on him. He just climbed in on his own. He just got in by himself and let himself be buried. I have never seen that motherfucker since, and I hope he rots in hell. My beautiful little boy. Thank you for listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please give it a like or leave a review on any platform and subscribe to hear future releases. And if you want to support the podcast, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash newghoststories. The podcast is written and produced by me, David Paul Nixon, and today's story features in the book 11 New Ghost Stories, which is available from Amazon, Apple Books, and other book retailers. To hear all the latest from me, Sign up to my Substack at davidpaulnixon.substack.com. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at New Ghost Stories and learn more at newghoststories.com. Next time on the New Ghost Stories podcast, a demanding job, a demanding wife, and a demanding child, one man finally reaches the end of his tether. I am demanding when it comes to their time and in, ins- and in insisting on corroborative evidence. I am demanding when it comes to their time and in insisting upon corroborative evidence and in insisting upon corroborative evidence. <laughs> the New Ghost Stories podcast is supported by Horrified, the website that celebrates and champions British horror, covering films, television, books, fiction and more. You can visit Horrified at horrifiedmagazine.co.uk and find them on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Horrified Mag.